Hey y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferencecom slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome to Progression, Success in the Music Industry. I'm your host, Travis Ferentz, and this is episode number 68. Super excited to share today's interview with you. It was a great hang, so I think you'll enjoy it. We get into all kinds of stuff like bringing influences from doing front of house to the record making process, the importance of building relationships early in your career, how learning more can make you worse before it actually makes you better, and then the idea of viewing your career as the long game. But before we do all that fun stuff, I wanted to do a little rant, as we always do. Today's topic, why the most important part of working for yourself is not always actually doing the work. Now, I've had guests before mention the importance of having a day dedicated to working on your business and not just for your business. And that idea has come up several times. So I wanted to dig into that a bit and also expand on it. So first off, there's the obvious part of this idea, the organizational aspects of running your own business, file management emails, invoices, website updates, etc., etc. If you're in the creative field, which 99% of the people listening to this show are, then you really don't want to spend much time with your brain in those businessy type things. You'd much rather be creating, which I think is why it's super important to batch these things together. You got to block out time each week to handle that stuff. A, so you know that it all gets done, and B, it lets your brain get into that non-creative mode and just knock that stuff out. Then you can get back to making music with focus, knowing that all that admin nonsense is done. So nothing new here. Definitely not a groundbreaking concept. So let's move on to some of the less obvious and potentially more important ways that you can be working for yourself while not actually working for your clients. So we've got automation and systems. My guest today touches on this a bit, and I fully agree with him. If you set up automations that can do mundane and repetitive tasks for you, It allows you to get straight to doing your creative work and also more likely to hit that flow state. You should not be taking two hours out of the middle of your day to print mixes or stems if there's a way to automate it so that your computer can do it for you when you're doing something else. Another important part of this is being organized. If you can't find songs or files or emails or whatever, then you are wasting your time. If there's an organizational method that will help you work faster, then set aside time to make it happen. I'm doing that exact thing this week. The way my podcast hard drive is organized is the way that made sense when I started it and I had never done a podcast and wasn't creating video content and didn't have an editor on my team. Now, it makes no sense and I spend far too much time digging into folders to move files around. And yes, we're talking about five minutes, but we're talking about five minutes a few times a week, 52 weeks a year, it adds up. But anyway, back on point, all of these things give you more time. And I've said a million times on the show, Time is the most important thing you have. Creating time for yourself is invaluable. You've got to do whatever you can to give yourself more time. The next thing that comes to mind is expanding your network, reaching out to potential collaborators, etc. It's not actually work, but it is work. So many musicians, engineers, and producers will get super busy, right? They'll work, 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 and then they'll finish a run of projects and realize that there's nothing on the books. I've done it, you've done it, and don't you dare say you haven't because you have. So you've got to remember that when you work for yourself, you are the only one that is responsible for maintaining your relationships and looking for new opportunities. Okay, so you could argue that those two are still pretty obvious if you listen to any kind of business podcast, Uh, but I still have two more that I actually think are the most valuable. And the first one of those being, you've got to set time aside for learning and practicing. This is huge. There's always something you can be doing to get better. And a lot of us get busy and we think that because we're working, we must be getting better. And that is true. If you make beats every day or you mix every day, then you're definitely getting better. But you will also fall into maybe stale workflows and habits, right? 
That's why I think it's important to set time aside to practice, learn, and explore your craft. Time that is outside of a client-related project. When you're working for a client, you're not going to go deep down the rabbit hole of some new synth that you just bought. You're going to turn it on, you're going to get something cool that everybody's vibing with, and then you're going to print that. If you really want to learn it, you need to take time to do that. If you want to learn the ins and outs of your new tools or a new technique, you've got to dedicate non-project time to it. Great example, a buddy of mine is probably one of the top guitar players around. I mean, one like literally mind-blowingly talented, the best guitar player I personally know. He practices every day. Like practices, not noodles around and holds a guitar. He practices. And if he's in town on tour and there's another great guitar player there, he tries to take a lesson. Even though he's probably easily on par with that other player or maybe even better. He always wants to get better and learn new techniques. It's just in his nature. And don't even get me started on learning stuff outside of your trade, right? You all know that I'm a huge fan of learning stuff outside of music and seeing if it can spark an idea in my mixing or podcasting. So there's that one. Learn and practice. Super important. Now, finally, the last one I've got for you. You've got to have balance and make time for yourself. If you want to be a great collaborator or service provider, you've got to be happy with you and you've got to take care of yourself. You can't be overworked or unhealthy or a bad friend or bad partner or whatever it is that's eating away at you. If you're carrying a negative energy with you because you've lost balance or you're frustrated with some part of your life, you will bring that energy into every gig you do. And it might not affect you for a few years. You might get away with it, but eventually it'll catch up with you. You also can't do the other things in this list if you're fighting some kind of demon. When life sucks, your file organization doesn't really seem to matter much. There doesn't seem to be a need to practice or learn anything, and responding to emails and networking feels just a little too daunting. So I just ask that you try to stay in touch with what's best for you. Ask yourself, what do I need? Do I need to make a change? If you do, then make it. And I know we all get caught up in the hustle culture, right? That's part of this. We always want to say we're crazy busy when someone asks how work is. And I agree that, yes, we need to have a bit of that to get where we want to go. But you've also got to keep it mixed with a healthy dose of the rest of life as well. Okay, so that's it. That's all I got. Those are the reasons why I think the most important part of working for yourself is not always the actual work you're doing for clients, but rather the work you do for yourself. Today's guest is producer and mixer Andrew Mori. Andrew started his career running front of house for Ra Ra Riot before moving full-time into the studio. Since then, he's mixed for artists such as Shawn Mendes, Lizzo, Post Malone, Jeremy Zucker, Coyne, and Matty Diaz, as well as done production work for Kimbra, Louis Damar, and Cruiser. So I'm super excited to sit down and hear his whole story. So welcome to the show, Andrew Mori. Hey, Andrew, what's up? Hey, what's up, Travis? How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Good, man. Good. It's, it's early for me, but uh, I, I'm an early person, so it's great. Yeah, I, I've gathered that. And yeah, when I booked it, I was like, oh, I guess he's up and going at, what is it, 8? <laughs> yeah, it yeah, was, was 8. Yeah, I was up before that. But uh, yeah. yeah, you're coming yeah. to us from outside New York City, right? To, are we allowed to tell people that you're not really in New York full time anymore? <laughs> sure. Yeah, it's always changing. I mean, yeah, I kind of started doing all this work in my early 20s in New York City, living in Brooklyn. But I, uh, in 2019, bought a house out in Western New Jersey, which is like 90 minute drive from the city. Nice. And then the pandemic happened up uh, I should mention, we still have our apartment in New York. So we start, We were like kind of splitting time throughout the pandemic, which was really fortunate that we had somewhere to kind of escape to. Yeah. But since then, yeah, I, you know, with 2020 dragging on, the pandemic dragging on, I just let go of my Brooklyn studio and moved everything out here, which has been awesome. I, I really love it out here. And it's a totally different kind of uh, life and work day. Yeah. Because I kind of just float in and out of the studio as I want. But um, yeah, I'm actually going to have a, uh, a new Brooklyn space soon. I, I found a studio I'm going to share with a friend. and Okay, cool. Perfect. So you can still get back into town. Trying to get it all going again back in the city. Yeah. Nice. Are you open to having clients out at the new studio? Are you excited to like do a record out there? Or you Or you like to kind of be alone and have your day? I mean, I've been here for I guess it's been like two years full time, but uh, yeah, I've done plenty of projects out here. Cool. I've done some production work and recording with friends and various artists, but uh, yeah, most of my work is mixing. So it's, we all know how that goes. It's just notes and Dropbox and email and texting. Right. I don't know why nobody, nobody likes to go. <laughs> I really, I mean, I think there's a much bigger conversation at play there, but uh, yeah, people are pretty 
insular these days. And technology is so convenient. I mean, it's pretty wild. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I do mixes for people that are in Los Angeles and they, they still don't want to come over and do like the last round of notes. I don't know why it is. <laughs> I, I, I like having people in the room. Do you enjoy it or do you like to be alone when you're mixing? It depends. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty introverted by nature. And so, you know, working with someone that I've never met before, it feels very different than working with someone I do know. I, I'm much more inclined to invite people over that I already know and yeah. just can feel comfortable and hang with. Yeah. I don't so much love the feeling of like hosting and sort of being like, welcome to my, I don't know. It's, it's just a, I like it to be casual. So. Yeah. So, well, I think that's, I was doing a lot of pop songwriting sessions for, for years. And that was the thing that I started to see that everybody, they didn't want to be in like the fancy studio. They wanted like, you didn't need any acoustic treatment on the wall. They wanted a couch. They wanted it to be chill. <laughs> Like it yeah. became more and more casual, and I was like, I miss the studio. Like, it, yeah, where's my big console? We just have a bunch of beanbags now. Especially for you, you you came up at Capitol, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's yeah, that's talking about pro environment. It's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> it, was, it was a fun spot, a fun spot. Let's see. Now that we've already tangented off of my my notes, <laughs> <laughs> let me let me just check them out. So, um, all right. Well, we should get into you know actually doing the podcast. I'm personally really excited to chat with you because the type of work you're doing is kind of like the mix of like pop and alternative and indie that I personally would love to do. <laughs> I'm going to try really hard to have this conversation be for my audience and not like hijack it for myself. <laughs> Whatever. People take things anyway. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We got to give them a little rundown of how you got into music and how you got here. What, what was your childhood or your intro to music? Yeah, my, um, my dad was a musician. He still is. Uh, but he played in bands all through his 20s and most of his 30s, I think, in the 70s. So he had like this club band that would play like these crazy four-hour sets and do residencies at clubs. And they had lights and costumes and skits. And so my dad, my dad comes from, you know, all things music and performance and live and all that. So I grew up around all that, got to go to sound checks and play the drums and play with the fog machine and all kinds of stuff like that. But... <laughs> Eventually, you know, gaining some independence as I got older, I got really into guitar and I was playing with MIDI on my old PC and yeah, just sort of, you know, what kids do when they get really into something. And I had started playing in bands with my friends too in middle school, high school and into college. But yeah, my, my dad was always really involved in all my music stuff and uh, taught me a lot when I was young about just, I don't know, I guess how it works and like what to listen for and what makes something uh, pro versus not pro and all that kind of stuff. So I've just always been into how to elevate the presentation of things around music, whether it's playing or running a band or doing lights or sound or whatever. So that's cool. Very cool. If I remember some of the stuff I've read about you, you didn't go to college for music though, but you were doing music in college. I mean, I guess I, it was safe to say I was into all things media. So I also was into mm. video in, in okay. high school. And so I went to Syracuse University and that was like a TV, radio, film program. It just was kind of like my biggest interest at the time. In hindsight, it seems like it would have made a lot more sense for me to do music, but I was still able to take a bunch of music recording classes and sort of take the most from Syracuse that existed around music production and live sound and stuff. And Oh, cool. So yeah, I spun it into something that was worthwhile, but wasn't my focus per se. <laughs> right. So was music always kind of the the end goal or was there a little bit of you that wanted to do something in video? Well, it, I guess for a minute, I thought I was really into these like concert DVDs, like, you know, oh, Coldplay yeah. Live 2003 or like uh, the U2 Elevation Tour. Like I was just obsessed with these spectacle concerts and... I don't know, DVDs were like such a thing in the mid-2000s, I feel like. And oh, yeah. I just loved all that stuff. And so I thought maybe I wanted to like direct concert videos or, or do lighting for concerts or something. So That's cool. Definitely music, but as to what craft within music was a little, I was kind of into everything back then. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And so that's how you kind of, you started out front of house, right? That's where you started messing with yeah. engineering type things. I think, well, I mean, I mentioned I was playing with MIDI when I was in like fifth grade and stuff. Like I, I did do some home recording and playing with microphones and logic early on and plugins and all that. But 
But by the time I graduated college, I had met this band, Ra Ra Riot, who took me out on tour to mix front of house. And so, yeah, I had, I had a lot of experience in a bunch of different things, but front of house quickly became one of them. And suddenly I found myself on tour, you know, for two months straight, mixing live sound at a different venue every night and just like loving it and being totally scared shitless because <laughs> it's only one shot. I didn't have any formal training in front of house. Um, I never worked at a venue. I didn't have a mentor. I just kind of had my experience like running band events in high school and just right, just having a, an instinct for signal flow and tone and stuff. So, but yeah, I learned fast. What size venues were you thrown into? Well, this was the band's debut record and they had a lot of buzz so it's it was kind of like when they played a large city it was venues like bowery ballroom or the el rey theater in la you know kind of between the 300 500 cap but yeah i don't know then we'd play like missouri and play for 75 people so i don't know It, it was early in their run and it was a good variety of stuff yeah 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 that that's cool the the live world is like so unlike the studio world, I'm I'm scared shitless of it. I don't like it. The whole like the idea that like everything happens one time and I can't really think about it. Yeah. Uh, I actually have a funny story about going to South by Southwest with my buddy. We were going to record, we were going to be camped out at a venue and record a bunch of stuff. Uh-huh. And so we'd like shipped a bunch of gear down there that we rented. And so he looks at me and he was like, hey man, you got any gaff tape? And I was like, <laughs> no, do you have any gaff tape? And we're like, we're at South by. And I'm like, how did we come down here with no gaff tape? So I have to go over to the live guy. And I'm like, hey, man, can I borrow your gaff tape? And he just looks at me. He's like, you don't have any gaff tape? He's like, it's over there in that box. And I walk over to the box, and they have like 10 different colors of gaff tape. And then they have like saws and drills. Oh, yeah. And I'm just looking at it. And I walk back to my friend. I'm like, dude, I was like, we don't have gaff tape. These guys over here have saws. I was like, that's how out of our <laughs> element we are. <laughs> yeah, dude. It's a totally different culture and um, set of tools, I guess, in a way. Yeah. But yeah, it was very, it was interesting um, getting to learn the, this sort of cultural side of live sound. It's a very different thing than sort of bands and studio people. And I kind of always felt out of place doing it, honestly. Mm. But I quickly learned that the best thing you can do on tour as a live sound engineer is make friends with the house guy immediately or house whoever's working. Right. Like you got to get on the good side early so that they want to help you. Because <laughs> I've experienced the other side of that. For some reason, if someone's really salty that day, it's like pulling teeth, just trying to get basic things done. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, is there anything, since it is such a different world, is there anything that influenced you early on doing that front of house stuff that you still use, like mixing every day now? Yeah, I think the, um, I won't go too long here, but there was definitely a confluence of stuff I learned from live sound and the things I enjoyed about live sound that I brought into record making. And I think the two things are like, sort of just the visceral nature of the, the volume of a PA system, especially a good one in a good sounding room. It's like that, that's just such a immersive experience. And yeah, it kind of calibrated me to want to hear music a certain way. And, and then you also tie in the fact that there's hundreds or thousands of people in the room and you can almost like feel this, um, this energy between your work and like what everyone's experiencing. And Making records, it doesn't work that way at all. It's it's very, uh, you know, at best you get delayed gratification. Like when you find out maybe something you mixed has a huge audience and then you get to see it live one day. But playing with faders and mixing, you know, for real mixing, like using your brain and body in real time to present something was very exciting. And yeah, I never wanted to lose that feeling making records. So... I just tried to keep that with me. And, and along the way, I ended up doing a Mix with the Masters seminar uh, with Michael Brower. And, you know, his, his sort of, one of his biggest teachable moments is, you know, using faders and, and writing things and being musical. And so between that seminar and all the live sound experience, I just really felt like, okay, I, I just want to make music feel dynamic and exciting. And yeah, it definitely influenced me, all the touring, yeah. That's cool. I make me think of a uh, an engineer, uh, Don Smith is a classic old school guy. I watched him work once. He passed away. He's a great guy. Mm-hmm. But he was standing, monitors just wide open. Yeah. And like just 
playing the console, you know, and you're just, I'd never seen anybody just like moving around and like throwing faders like him. And I was like, this guy's a rock star. I mean, he did like Stones records and Tom Petty records. So cool. So he, he is a rock star, but, right. but just watching like a studio engineer do that, I was like, wow, I want to do that. That looks fun. <laughs> yeah. You don't have to be uh, hunched over and yeah. I love that meme. Um, there's like the photo of the skeleton that's just like <laughs> yeah. crumpled under the console. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah. Try to not do that. Yeah. Well, so I'm assuming then you must have faders in your mix, mix setup. You must have some kind of controller. <laughs> I wish I did. I've tried for years <laughs> to find a way to, to integrate faders into mixing. But unfortunately, when you load up a bunch of plugins in a session, you get that, you know, that one second latency. Yeah. And I just, for me, having all that experience touring with analog consoles or, or like zero latency systems, I have no tolerance for latency with faders. It just it feels awful to me. Oh, yeah. So I haven't found a way to comfortably use faders in my studios on my mixing work. It just, I guess I've tried, but I've since sold it all. And <laughs> like everyone else, just mess around with the mouse. Mousing around. Yeah. If you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button, and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. So what inspired you to do the Mix with the Masters thing? Were you kind of thinking, like, I want to get into studios and this looks really cool? Yeah. When I was in my early 20s, I was extremely driven to get my foot in the door and work on, you know, real records. Um, right. And I, I was starting to figure out who all these mixers were and producers. And I didn't know who any of these names were getting into it. But yeah, I was just uh, absorbing everything I could about, you know, who was doing the bulk of the work on the music that I liked out there. And one day I saw this banner ad on what is now gearspace.com for this thing, Mix with the Masters, Michael Brower, South of France, one week. I was just like, what? I just... I'm, I love Michael Brower's work. Like, wait, yeah. there's a seminar with him for a week in France? Like, what is this? It was right when Mixed with the Masters had was getting started. And so I immediately applied. I sent like a cover letter and sent some samples of whatever I was working on. And they accepted me. So I, I did it. Cool. And it was, it seemed really kind of crazy. And like, I wasn't even sure if it was legit at first. It was just like, what is this? Turns out it was uh, one of the best things I ever did because it was incredibly inspiring and... I met all these cool engineers there, and yeah, it was just, it was pretty cool. That's awesome. So it's an application process to go to those things. Yeah, I mean, I think they just want to make sure that they get people who are serious. And right. uh, maybe not in over their head with, like, the sort of level of knowledge that Mixed with the Masters tries to tap into, you know? That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. But that said, it, it made sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's cool. So how did the studio transition actually happen? Well, it kind of never did. It was, I should mention, I was also doing all this work in between the touring. So like I was on tour for two months here and then I'd be off for three months and I would dig up some recording work or mixing work. Oh, okay. So it was all kind of intermingled while you were going. It really was. And a lot of the opportunities that I was making for myself were related to people I had met on tour, whether it was members of an opening band or the front of house guy for the opening band or some manager I had met backstage at some show or, yeah, you know, it was, it was a really good way for me to um, just meet a ton of people really fast. That's cool. That's cool. I was actually going to ask you from some of the other podcasts I listened to you on, it sounds to me like, I don't want to say networking because it can be a dirty word, but relationships have been huge for, for most of your opportunities. Yeah. But then you said you're an introvert, but yet you're doing my podcast <laughs> <laughs> you must be, you must actually be friendly. You just like to be by yourself sometimes. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, come on. I like people. I like hanging yeah. out. I like, right. uh, I love the interpersonal sort of magical moments that can happen making music with people. I'm just like, I don't know. I prefer to work alone, I guess is the best way to put okay. it. Okay, right. It's a different headspace. And I, I think I do 
better work and I'm just more comfortable when I'm alone. Yeah. I love collaborating with people that I resonate with and, um, and meeting people who are doing cool things and, you know, trying to find a way to collaborate. Yeah. Well, I found, I, this was like a long time ago on the podcast, I kind of had, had this idea of like authentic networking and it's like, the clients that I enjoy working with the most are the people that we just have a great time with in the studio. Do you find that just like, you're just friends with these people that you met on tour and then six months later, somebody calls and they're like, hey, you want to mix a song? You want to do a remix? Yeah, exactly. That There was a lot of that. I guess the the dynamic has shifted some, quite a bit actually, since I've gotten older and and now work with a manager who, who facilitates a lot of new relationships and uh, I'm way less out there than I used to be. But, you know, things are going well and... I'm happy with the work I get and yeah, it feels comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about managers. We're, we're skipping ahead in my, my list here. Managers can be kind of this, uh, I don't know, for engineers and producers, like everybody feels like they want one. Like I know right now I'm kind of like exploring whether a manager would benefit me and people argue, go back and forth. Do you have any thoughts or advice for producers or engineers that are maybe looking for managers? Do they need them? What kind of person are they looking for? What have you found in your relationship? I know you've been with the same person for a while, so. Yep. I think you're you're onto something with the way you framed that. Not everyone needs a manager, I don't think. I mean, I think if you're really business savvy and you're good at organization and following up and, and you, you're sort of into your, your systems and you're able to do all that and mix music, then yeah, you might as well save the commission and, and just drive your own ship. But uh, for me, I'm a little bit of a chaotic person in terms of organization. Like, I have a really time, hard time organizing and uh, sort of staying regimented. Like, things get a little chaotic. <laughs> and and I, I try to channel it all into the work, you know? And, and so this is partly just the way things have evolved because I have worked with my manager for so long. It's, I think it's been about eight years now. I mean, I used to be doing my own invoices and... Yeah, emailing like crazy. But there came a point where where I wanted to delegate and focus my energy on mixing and recording whatever whatever the work is. But um, I I think it's unique for every person because everyone's good at different things. Every manager is good at different things, and it's just a custom fit each time. I think. Yeah. But yeah, happy to talk more about the dynamic we have and and how that works. Well, how is that dynamic work for you? Especially how's it like changed over the years? I don't know if it's changed that much over the years other than, you know, I'd slowly I've had opportunities to work on some bigger artists. And I guess each time you you get to work on something that has a bigger audience, you get a little bit more like name recognition or reputation and things just start to broaden in terms of opportunity. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, it happens so slowly that you almost don't feel it. At least that's been my experience. But yeah, when I stop and look back, it's been just a very slow, steady progression. Yeah. I try to, you know, remind people that are just starting out, like, I've, at least I felt like when I got to LA, I was like 22. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to be mixing records and like producing when I'm like 26. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Some people pull it off. I'm always Some impressed people with do those pull people. Yeah. 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 But I mean, if you go like the traditional studio route, I mean, you're going to be a runner for like a year. You're going to be an assistant for a couple of years. Yeah. Like, everything goes in years. Nothing goes in minutes. But there are those cases where, you know, you can kind of pop off. But I feel like those people, maybe you'd have an opinion on this, those people are really tapped into the music community and they have really have strong relationships and they just make a record that people love and it pops off and that band gets signed and that producer's thrown into the, you know, fire of all the label bands. But it really, it, it always comes down to relationships. Oh, yeah. If you don't have a lot of friends that want to hang out and work with you, then you're not going to work very much. Yeah. And not only that, like sort of your, I guess your temper and like your sort of style of what it's like to work with you is important. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sometimes someone's like production brilliance can come at a cost of being like a little like intense or like a little too opinionated or something. And, you know, I've, I've probably had my moments doing that, but but yeah, it's 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 always important. As I get older, I I put a lot of focus on trying to just be as polite as I can and as responsive and professional as I can, and just try to make it easy. I don't want to add stress to anyone's no. process. You know, mixing I think typically comes at a point when everyone's a bit fried or uh, maybe not fried, but uh, 
I don't know. You just want to get it done. Like, like, okay, it's time to get this mixed, time to get it mastered and put it out. Yeah. And I just sort of recognize like people want a really smooth process. Yeah. There. And so I uh, put a lot of energy into that. What, like, uh, are there any things that you do that you feel like give that smooth process to your clients, whether they be technical or just psychological? Yeah, I think something I'm kind of chewing on lately is uh, just not over-explaining myself. Like, I think it's easy to some, when you send a mix sometimes to like type out a bunch of, I did this, I did this, uh, I'm not so sure about this, maybe next mix I'll, uh, I'll work on that. I think it's better to just try to save yourself from all that and just send your best work and hope that it resonates with the client. And I found recently more often than not when it is a good fit, you know, people are just like, amazing, like turn the vocal up in the verse and add some more reverb in this spot. And it's just like less wordy and and just more about listening, I guess. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 I've I've definitely done that. I've I've over explained me too. Mixes. Or or like uh I don't want to say got def- not defensive over mixed notes, but like I also feel like if I'm not really into a mixed note and so I don't maybe push that eq or that volume as much as i think they would want i'll be like i'll kind of make sure that <laughs> yeah. you're like i did turn the bass up i want you to know that i did turn the bass up yeah but i i don't know i guess i've found as i've gotten older is i just i make sure that whether i agree with it or not like if they want the bass up like i audibly turn the bass up yeah like it's going to be louder yep you know because you have to remember that like when you and i are like under the microscope like our half db in our room is like, okay, that's perfect, but they don't hear that on their earbuds. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I totally relate. Yeah, it is funny how on certain projects, like mixed notes can feel like a assault on your ego or something. Uh, it, <laughs> sometimes when that happens, I have to like really decompress and think like, okay, we're just making music. It's all good. Feel good about the mix. Like just power through, you know? Yeah. But other times it's just so... People are so pleasant and creative and have amazing ideas and I'm I'm impressed with their mixed notes and they make my work better and it's just really symbiotic. Yeah. But yeah, uh, I think it's just uh, good to keep a level head. Yeah. Try to keep a level head. Yeah. Totally. I've learned that uh, you just can never expect the first sentence to be like, sounds great. And then the mixed notes, like the people <laughs> always leave, they leave yeah. sounds great off and they're like, at one minute and 32 seconds, please turn up the symbol. And then, like, you're, you know, you do the revisions, and you do the whole process, and you're like, well, I, I guess they liked it. They never said they liked it. They just sent notes. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a kind of a, a studio thing. Like, I just, I found that you only got feedback when you were, like, an assistant or an engineer when you were doing something wrong. Yeah. So it's like, as long as nobody says anything, you're all good. Yeah. I've just come to realize how different everyone is. I mean, you just can't yeah. expect anything really when you first meet someone or start working with them. You have to, it takes time to get to know somebody. And, uh, you know, some people are rude and they, they don't tell you your mix is great, even though it is. <laughs> <laughs> but you kind of just learn like, well, whatever. They're just focused on what they need to get done and it's all good. And other people are just like, they become your genuine friend like immediately because they're just, it's so fun to, to work with them. Yeah. Do you do a lot of like preliminary chats with people before you, you dig in? Or or sometimes is it just like, here's the link, send me the mix? I go in waves with that. Sometimes I, I'll have a month where I'm really like feeling energized and more social. And I'll, I'll always kind of try to do that, hop on the phone with the producer before getting going. And then there's other times where I kind of just feel like I'm just going to do the work. And like, if it goes well, it goes well. And if if it's not for them, you know, we'll have a conversation. But I don't know. It can be double-edged because sometimes you talk to somebody and they say something that gets in your head and it sort of um, tampers with your, maybe what would be your first instinct. Oh, that's interesting. And it's yeah. just a fine line. It's some projects, that's a good thing. Some projects, that's a bad thing. It's very, uh, all of it's unpredictable to me. I kind of just yeah. go with whatever my gut feeling is in the moment. And it it's always changing. Okay. Yeah. That is an interesting point. I've yeah, you can get into the mindset of like trying to meet their expectations or or their reference, but a lot of times like their reference isn't it isn't really about what they want. Yeah, like you know that's not the actual vocal sound they want. It's the feeling of the song that they want. And then if you get stuck on like right the technicals of that vocal sound, it's going to be a miss. Yeah, that's it. That's a good point. I, I I'm going to write. I'm going to use that. I'm gonna write that down. Yeah, <laughs> I think uh, mixers 
perhaps try to quantify everything in like, well, this is what you do with vocals and this is how you make a vocal sound pro. Uh, you know, there's sort of all these like maybe prescriptive type processes that you would do. And most musicians don't think that way. Mm -mm. And so it's important to remember that. And uh, yeah, I think the more I study mixing and do mixing work and try to extrapolate what the, the greatest mixers are doing, like, you know, Manny and Spike and all these people that I look up to, I think a lot of it is, um, it's just, it's instinct and it's like, it's more feeling than it is um, some tricks that mixers do. Totally. And, and really trying to tap into that because I think that's how you get better uh, over the long haul. And it's hard, it's challenging, but I'm working on it. Yeah. Well, I always feel like you have to like, you know, when you're younger, you have to overdo everything. Yeah. You have to figure out how everything works. You have to do a bunch of stupid shit. You have to like play with all these presets. And then once you kind of wrap your head around all the tools, then you can kind of finally reach that like flow state. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And for me, I think that took about six, seven years. Yeah. You know, people will learn at different rates, I suppose. But it's funny. I think back to the first thing I produced and mixed and it was like way better than the next 10 things I did. It's fascinating. I had like a bit of beginner's luck, like pure instinct. Yeah. I was more fearless with plugins and settings and all I cared about was getting the whole thing to sound right. And I didn't, I hadn't read all these articles and listened to all these interviews and heard all these different people talk about this trick and that trick and this compressor and that EQ. And it was just raw tools and like a vision and I was better for it, you know? And then I think a lot of people do this, that you, you learn more and you get worse before you get better. <laughs> yeah. That's really good insight, actually. I, I, I agree yeah. with that. Because then you're also like, you know, you do something, you feel obligated to make the next mix or the next production better than the last one. But like, you can't really define better. Yeah. Because every project and every artist is different. So yeah, that's a cool, that's a cool angle. I like that. I wanted to ask you a little bit about, not like in depth, but I know from listening to, I think, Working Class Audio, the Sean Mendez tune that you co-produced and, and mixed, you said that was a long process. It was like five or six weeks. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you what that was like going back and forth. And also, since I, I see that you do a lot of like, you do co-production I'm assuming sometimes while you're mixing, mm -hmm. when you feel like you can bring something to a song or your manager feels like you can bring something to the song, yeah. how do you broach that subject with the artist or the producer? Yeah, it's definitely tricky. Um, the song you're, you're referencing, Sean Mendez, There's Nothing Holding Me Back, that song came to me, I want to say it kind of felt like it was 60% there it, or 70% mm. maybe. Um, it was a big production, a lot of layers, a lot of great stuff. Like everything in there is what kind of made the final cut. But it just needed some, maybe a couple momentum shifts or a little cleanup. And I mean, the reason I got a co-production credit was just because it was such a, there were a lot of decisions made over the course of the song being in my hands on my computer. A lot of notes, a lot of ideas tried and abandoned. And it was basically production work in the context of it sounding mixed. Got it. So I mixed it, and then, you know, people are like, let's try muting the kick drum for the for eight bars here, and can you mute all those vocal layers in this part? And, like, there was a lot of that kind of back-and-forth stuff. Got it. But ultimately, yeah, I, I ended up just kind of, as I was sensing that everyone was liking the progress, I would start doing things more without direction or permission. Um, just little things, little, like, impact drop samples or muting certain regions to buy space for some other element or whatever it is. Um, yeah, it was just kind of a, let's just keep messing with this until we all love it. Okay. And that's what happened. And it took six weeks. Yeah. <laughs> so, but it, it, it felt totally worth it, of course, because that song was an instant smash. And yeah, it, was, it was huge. I had never worked on anything like that before. It was, it was very exciting. How did that project end up on your desk? So my manager, Ollie, he also manages a writer-producer, Teddy Geiger. And Teddy co-wrote and produced almost all of Sean's first three records, I guess. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, Teddy had a, a really 
long history with Sean and just this one song, I guess she kind of tapped out on ideas for it or, or uh, energy for it. And so Ollie sent it my way. That's cool. As an experiment, I, I, probably mostly, and it, it, it panned out. That's awesome. Well, you've kind of, I don't think you deliberately hinted at it, but you've kind of mentioned it. And it was something I was thinking about asking you. And this is a little bit of maybe a limiting belief for myself. But I feel like artists and producers, writers are like open to trying new people and like maybe the next up and comer. But then when you like go around to the label side and the A&R side, a lot of those people seem to be very reluctant to like give a new mixer a shot, yeah. give a new mastering engineer a shot. They kind of leave it to the artist and the producer to make that happen and then kind of validate that person. Do you, do you think that that's true to some extent or is that just something that I think? No, I, th- I think I agree. I mean, I understand though, everyone, uh, there's a lot on the line. Yeah. Especially with bigger artists where the budget's bigger. I mean, if you can afford an A-list mixer... Why, why not? Yeah. You know, why would you try some, some <laughs> <Why> kid? <laughs> that's, that's true. That's true. So, yeah, there's definitely, I think that's the reason this business is like, at least mixing, is such a long game. Because it, it's about those relationships and it's about trust and it's about consistency and quality control and reliability. And you got to do a lot of work and meet a lot of people and show a lot of people that you know what you're doing before you get that sort of that access to uh, trust, you know? Yeah. And there are tons of people that I would like to meet or work with that uh, just have no idea who I am, you know? Because I'm just not, I'm not there yet. And it might take another 10 years to widen the net like I'm sort of imagining. But yeah, the most you can do is just do a good job and hope everyone likes it. Yeah. I feel like so much of it is just up to chance. It's, you know, if you can... Working on records that people resonate with, you know, that's kind of the secret, but who knows what's going to resonate? You know, you could work with a big artist and it can tank. Yeah. You can work with a, an unknown person in a bedroom, it could blow up. So, yeah. You never know. I never know. Caught a glimpse of both of those. And it's, <laughs> it's like the more I do it, the more I'm just like, wait, how does this work? Like, I don't know. It's almost like not trying, like, you kind of run out of uh, reasons to try and figure it out. Just, just go with it. That's been my mantra lately. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I, it's like, I was just talking about this uh, in the intro to the podcast that came out yesterday. I was talking about like the idea of like perfection. And it's like, you can't like try to make a perfect record if you're an A&R guy or a perfect mix if you're a mixer, because there's no feedback. Right. Like what is perfect if there's no audience to be like, yeah, this is good or this is bad. But then still at that point, there's still no perfect, you know, it's just correct. You got to roll with it and be done and put it out in the world and see what happens. I think there's just, um, sometimes I think the word perfect or what I, what I would think of a perfect mix being is just familiar. It's just like, mm. oh, it just sounds like all those other good mixes. Um, right. Yeah, everyone's calibrated to a certain balance and brightness and punch and density. Like those are the things that, yeah, I guess make up perfection. But, it, but it's, it's a certain kind of perception of that stuff, you know? Yeah, everybody does react different. Yeah. So I know you, you mix and you produce. How do you choose what you're doing, what projects you're doing. Do you consciously balance, like I produce X number of records and I mix X number of records or is it just kind of what comes across the table? It's usually whatever comes across the table. I don't do that much outreach. And so most of my work is people hitting me up or or something maybe that Ollie has drummed up with, you know, people he knows and yeah, just sort of things unfold naturally. But uh, I definitely mix a lot more than I produce and that's always been the case. I think I did more production work a bunch of years ago. And a lot of those projects I'm so proud of and like have amazing fond memories of. But it's it's also just a very different kind of work than mixing. You know, you're you're in the room with people. The days are longer. I think you have to be on for longer during the day. And uh, it's just really draining. And it's a lot of energy and a lot of, it's a lot of creative energy. Yeah that you have to bring every day. And I sometimes feel like I need space to be at my most creative. And so for me, mixing is a lot, feels a lot more comfortable because I can sort of make my own schedule more and work on whatever song I'm feeling like I want to work on in the moment versus like, all right, we're starting at 11 today and God knows how long we'll go. And it's just a totally different job, honestly. Yeah. So yeah, I, I like mixing more, but when it's the right fit for production, I'm all in. 
Yeah. But those projects happen rarely. I, I want to say maybe like one or two a year. Okay. That I, I actually take on the producer role and am tracking things and editing and building the timeline with the artist. Yeah. When you do produce, you're engineering yourself. Yeah. And you're also the mixer. Are you kind of like, are you thinking all the way down the line, making sonic and part decisions based on where you think the mix is going to land? Or are you very caught up in like the performance and the vibe knowing that you can affect things, you know, drastically later? It's hard to know. It always feels like a like a trust fall. It's like, you don't really know how something's going to turn <laughs> like out. Trust fall. The most you can do is just go for it and start recording. And yeah, just, I just use your judgment along the way, but I also find myself mixing as I go. Yeah. Which is, again, double-edged. It's like, you know, I want this thing to sound legit right away. And I want the elements that we have to inform the final product. And, and sometimes you don't know the puzzle until you start actually fitting it together. Right. And so, yeah, EQing and stylizing things with reverbs and distortions, like that's all happening along the way. Okay. But it can be really, really, really hard to separate the end of the production process with the beginning of mixing. And I know what it feels like having done so much mixing work where you have that fresh slate and it's like, ah, this is, this is all organized and like this producer nailed it. Like everything sounds great. Let's really paint this picture and beat the rough mix. When I go to do that on my own production, it's just a totally different experience. I cannot extract what I know from the moment, and I don't get that clean slate. And so it always feels like I'm kind of working through a big mess to the finish line. And and more often than not, I'm happy with the result, but it's not pleasant <laughs> compared to like, <laughs> you know, just being the external mixer with the fresh perspective. Yeah, that's the nice part about having the you know, the mixer and the master engineers, it's like you want those extra ears because everybody is tired, you know? Yeah. But props to those artists that record themselves, produce themselves, mix it. Unbelievable. Yeah, I know, right? Always impressed. Yeah. And they have their own sound and they become like a reference. They're like, oh yeah, I want it to sound like this. And you're like, well, the only person that knows how to do that is that guy because he did all of it. I think it's amazing how much power everyone has now. Yeah. And I love working with artists who are good at it. Is less work for me, and it just means that I get to tap into that like ten percent layer of uh, kind of what separates something from being really magical to just being like good. Yeah. And at best, I hope as a mixer I can be working on the ten percent thing because it's really hard to get right, and I think it takes like a different person to to put all that energy into it. And then the same thing happens at mastering. It's a different headspace, a different way of listening. I think the delegation is good. And the more the more I do productions where I'm kind of cleaning up my own mess and mixing at the end, the more I want to maybe work with mixers. Right. But uh, budgets can be tricky there. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, what do you think about um, the, all the access to technology and stuff? And there seems to be, over the last couple of years, in like pop and alternative, less and less rules. Like people just doing crazy shit. Isn't it like... It's like really exciting, but then sometimes when you have to match something in the rough mix, like I'm left there scratching my head, I have to call the guy. I'm like, what yeah. What did you do? Can you just print this? Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's pretty wild. I think everyone's getting better at it. There was kind of a, a couple of years, maybe, I don't know, somewhere between 2015, 2019, where at least in my experience getting files from people, there were a lot of times where I was just like, there's definitely a better way to do this. Like printing stuff is very important and also delivering production for mixing where when you hit play, it actually is the same balance as the rough mix file. Yeah. And when you start putting plugins like OTT or like, I mean, it doesn't matter what it is, but you start getting into heavy gain reduction somewhere late in the mix path and it takes on its own chemistry and you can't, you can never recapture it like that. Yeah. Unless you copy the settings or, yeah. So, and I think there's there's different approaches to mixing. There's people who keep the stereo bus nice and open and then those balances maintain really easily into mixing and there's people who get heavy handed with the master bus and it might sound cool but you inevitably have to take a couple steps backwards to uh to work on mixing unless they just send the entire session and I can pick up where they left off if I have all their plugins which happens yeah. pretty often yeah do you prefer that 
I think so. Or is or you accept it when it happens. The work that I've felt best about, just from a result standpoint or like a workflow standpoint, have been Pro Tools sessions delivered by skilled producers, and we have all the same plugins. And I literally pick up where they left off. And so I can okay. rework their master bus or change the vocal EQ or because often they have awesome instincts and I don't know, I've done a lot of mixes where I spend the first hour and a half just trying to capture the rough mix. And even then, it's not the same. This happened to yeah. me just two days ago. And I, I started <laughs> over. I, I actually started over. It's yeah. just like, I have to get into a, a new headspace with this song. <laughs> and I think it, it panned out. Yeah, it, it can be frustrating, um, especially when the rough's really good, right? It's, yeah, al- it's yeah. almost like you want to be like, hey, this is a great mix. I'm going to give you a different great mix because you guys have this one. Yeah, I think that's a move that you can go either way. It's a fork in the road. It's like, oh, do you yeah. want me to do you want me to just quality control what you've done, or do you want me to actually offer something new here? And you never know what the client wants. Really, some people are extremely excited to hear a fresh take, and some just insist on it being the rough mix, but like a little louder and brighter and wider. <laughs> yeah, you just don't know until you dive in. Call the master engineer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, well, since we're kind of technical, I wanted to ask you a question that is really random. What's the most obscure, random mix tip you can think of? Not like a safe, obvious one. Like, what's some weird shit you do that you're willing to share that even you think is weird? Well, I don't think it's weird. I think it's just out of fashion, maybe. Uh, Or or it's like people people think about it, but it's not often articulated. When I'm mixing these days, I, uh, at least in the beginning part of the mix, when I have my speakers loud, I try to like feel the sound hitting my body. And I'm, I'm thinking about this very actively. And this actually kind of goes back to maybe my experience doing live sound. You know, sound at a concert is uh, very visceral. And I feel like when I'm mixing these days, I want to try to play with the way the low end hits your body. And, and so I'll play with EQs and I'll sweep and even just a few hurts left or right on an EQ, you find these different pockets of the way low end hits your chest and uh, the way it rubs against the bass. And so it's less about listening and more about just sort of like what, what feels comfortable. Yeah. Like the physics of this loud sound, like what seems right to me? And it's very esoteric and it almost sounds like I'm making it up, but I'm learning how to use that information because it's all valid. I think it all contributes. And I, I think that part might be the thing that most casual music listeners are going to perceive more than sort of heady sonic choices like brightness or reverb or I don't know. Yeah, that's really cool. And yeah, that I could definitely see that coming from your, your front house. It, it makes me think about like, I know some of the old school engineers, I've definitely heard guys say that they like, you know, they judge their low end by the way that the console kind of like, yeah, resonates if they're always in the same room and then uh there was a guy that was on mix with the masters uh who i'm gonna have to drop in and fix because i can't remember his name but he liked to check his low end by reaching out and like touching the pro axe you know the pro axe like they can really like bounce yeah and he was yeah. like he's like you gotta t- you gotta touch him he's like you got all your senses and i, I was just like interesting <laughs> it's it's really fascinating i mean you think about it your hearing is is your ear system vibrating yeah and it goes straight to our brain and that that's most of what music is to us um, in our experience. But yeah, there's so many other things that can tell you what's going on, whether it's a, a meter on the screen, a frequency graph, or a touching the speaker cone, or feeling the way your chest resonates on certain bass notes, or uh, even I think a lot of people use a car test to kind of check if the low end's too big, because it can like actually just distort or like swallow the rest of the sound. Um, there's all these little things that you learn over the years that help guide you to a mix that's really balanced and operating well. Yeah. You have a you have a lot of speakers, it sounds like, from some of the stuff I've, I know about you. You use a lot of references? Yeah, I mean, I'm always changing stuff too. Like, oh, okay. I think any, anyone who's worked with me has noticed that like every time they come to my studio, all the furniture is in like a different place and like... <laughs> Like, oh, this wasn't here before. Like, oh, you set it up like this today. Like, what's that all about? Uh, I do the same thing with my gear and my speakers and all that. But I think the consistent through line the past couple of years has been 
a pair of ATC25s, Amphion 118s, and NS10s. And then these Shure headphones that I have on. Cool. Nice. So yeah, I, I use an Avocet monitor controller and I switch a lot. And I think different speakers and different playback volumes will tell you different things about what you're working on. And different things are good for different, um, you know, honing in on different elements of your work. We'll do another nerd question before we, we close it out. I, I see the uh, the tube traps behind you. Are you a big tube trap fan? Yeah. At the risk of sounding like I'm endorsed or something, which I'm not, I just <laughs> I just truly love what this company makes. Um, Acoustic Sciences Corporation, ASC, invented the tube trap, which is like a patented acoustic product in, I think, the early 80s or something. And through a couple friends in music and just people I had met, started learning about these tube traps and like, oh, they're so great. They make everything sound better. And uh, eventually I found a giant set of them used. I got like 25 tube traps from this guy in Miami. And it just changed everything for me. I set them up in this configuration that they call an attack wall. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of like a horseshoe setup of these tube traps in line with your monitors and it kind of wraps around the mix position. And it just creates a subspace that is kind of like a, I don't want to say perfect, but it, it's it's perfect enough to just set up in any room and have sound great. Yeah. And I made so much progress learning how to mix and getting better once I got the tube traps set up in my studio. And it's traveled with me since. I've had them for like, I think almost 10 years now. And I keep buying more. You know, I find them used and I just hoarding, hoarding tube traps, but they, uh, they work for monitoring, they work for recording. They're just amazing. Highly recommended. How'd you get 25 tube traps from Miami? Did you drive down and get them? Craigslist. Uh, I just found this listing and I convinced him to freight it to me. Oh, wow. I was like, go get a pallet. Like drive the streets of like the industrial neighborhood, find a pallet on the side of the road, <laughs> load them up like this. I even, I like drew a diagram. I was like, buy ratchet straps. And like, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I was kind of young and just desperate to, to get this thing uh, and make it work. And yeah, the guy totally went for it and he, I organized the freight truck and it's a whole like thing, but. That's cool. That's cool. Well, I mean, it goes like right in with what you were talking about earlier with being like everything being more casual. It's like, if you want to do a record with a band and you guys want to do it in the mountains, you can take your tube traps. Yeah. I've worked for one producer that had tube traps when I uh, was first coming up and you could just turn a living room into a pretty controlled situation. It's pretty great. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. They're very cool. And they, they enhance the low end tightness of whatever they're near, whether it's speakers or drums or a vocalist, it, they just, they're great. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, just being able to hear and like acoustic stuff, I mean, everybody wants to buy gear and mics, but like if you're early on and you got $2,000, buy some panels, like, cause you just, you'll get better so much quicker. Like you said, yeah. once you had the tube traps and you can hear what's going on, you just like, you learn faster, you get work done faster. It's just, I don't know. A lot of people don't really put that much emphasis on the room. Yeah. But yeah, when you're learning how sound works and how mixing works and all these things, uh, you kind of don't know until you hear like a really great playback system. Yeah. And I think I think a lot of young producers coming up, all they know is the bedroom or their friend's bedroom. And those rooms have a lot of problems. So <laughs> calibrate your ears, go to set up a meeting at a really nice studio and just go visit some places and hear systems and learn what sounds good to you and try and make that environment for yourself. Yeah. So that you can hear deeper into your work. Yeah. It, it, it really changes the game. I couldn't agree more. I just finished this studio in my backyard like six months ago. and Looks awesome. Oh, thanks. And it's, you know, just being able to hear. It, this reminds me of when I was at Capitol. It's like I had some rooms between, but this is the first time it's been my room where I've been like, oh, this sounds like I know it's supposed to sound. So... I'm yeah. I'm happy. And I can't box it up like you can That's take cool. it, but hopefully hopefully I'll be <laughs> here for a while. <laughs> yeah. But dude, this has been uh this has been an awesome hang. I got uh I know you probably gotta get back to work. I got two last questions that I hit everybody with. So let's do those and I will let you go back to mixing. <laughs> Who said I'm mixing today? No, I was kidding. <laughs> I did. I did. <laughs> don't don't ruin it. So uh, was there a time in your career that you chose to redefine what success meant to you? Hmm. You know, I might kind of be in that now, actually. Oh. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think for the first many years of me doing this, I just, I was very, very, very uh, driven just on sheer like youthful energy to 
to get good and create opportunities and yeah, you know, make a name for myself and, and do some cool work and meet a bunch of cool people. And I feel really proud of the work I've done. And as I'm getting older, I'm kind of trying to like appreciate maybe like a broader life. I mean, you know, it's so easy to just bury your face in the screen and mix all day. And I've done that for so many years. And I think what I'm trying to do is um, basically just buy myself more free time. So I'm like leaning into techniques that speed things up, using tools that speed things up, like automation and just trying to really uh, lean into my instinct more and not overwork. So yeah. And, and also like, I think for me personally, like I'm not, not really driven by accolades so much. Um, I just want to have a enjoyable days and just work on stuff that feels inspiring and not really chasing anything in particular. I just hope that I get to keep working with inspired, cool musicians who make stuff that I like to work on. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really kind of more like a one day at a time sort of approach and just trusting that all this intense work I've put in is paying off now and, and allowing me to pivot like that. Yeah, I think that I resonate with that a lot. I'm kind of in the same place. But I feel like early on, like, I don't know if, if you felt this way, there's just so much hustle and so much work. It's like I sacrificed everything in my personal life Yeah. for, you know, moments of glory and moments of failure. <laughs> and then eventually you, uh, you're like, oh, yeah, like you said, like every day needs to be fun. It doesn't always have to be like a potential Grammy. Like not every yeah. Monday needs to be Grammy Monday. Yeah. And I think there's this, I don't, I don't know if you feel this way, something about this business, engineering, I think, and mixing in particular, people are very comparative to their peers. And they're like yeah. jealous. Like when oh, their yeah. buddy does a cool record, they're like, shit, I wanted to do that record. I can't believe he did it. I know that feeling. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've been there. I've, I've done that. But it's like, I don't know, you, you felt that a little bit and now you're past that and you're just like everybody wins together. I don't know if I'll ever be past it. I think, <laughs> you know, everyone's wired so differently just yeah. based on the way you grow up and who your parents are and all these things. And and like, I think for me, like a little bit of a competitive spirit has pushed me yeah. and, and helped me get to where I am. Other people see the world a little differently and it, you know, it's just, I don't know, everyone's different, but I want everyone to win too. But like, I also, sometimes I feel like I can harness a little bit of competition for the better and yeah. I think competition is healthy. I think jealousy and frustration. Competition might not be the right word. You know what I think it is? It's not competition. It's just sometimes I'm so impressed with someone's ability or, uh, you know, I'm just like, man, I wish I could make something that cool. Like, yeah. ugh, I wish, like, when's that going to come along, you know? <laughs> and there have been a couple of them, but as humans, we always want the next thing, you know? Yeah. It's just easy to get tied up. and Yeah, totally. I got to ask you before we do the last question, you mentioned like automations and time-saving things. Anything that you really love? Because I'm all about that shit. Mm. Well, I'm by no means on the frontier of this stuff, but basically just a stream deck and sound flow and keyboard maestro. Yeah. That's kind of the trio of tools that I use. Um, been using them for a few years. The stream deck I got in 2020, I think kind of everyone did. <laughs> sound flow and <laughs> the stream deck emerged like overnight seemingly. That's right. But yeah, I've, I've followed like all of Andrew Shep's discussions about it. And um, I think it's amazing. Yeah. I think it's unbelievable that you can, you got to put a little work into it up front, but you can make tools that do repetitive things for you. And, and I also use Bounce Butler. Yeah. Wow. I can't, I can't even begin to count how many hours I've saved. I know. Not being at my computer with that app. Highly recommend it. Have you tried Shep's Bounce Factory with, through Soundflow? No, I saw it. I kind of have to muster the energy to like wrap my head around that new thing. But have you? Is it cool? I I've, I tried it because I, I used Bounce Butler for like two years and I love that. Yeah. And then I kind of wanted to try to build my own with Soundflow. Hmm. And then Andrew Sheps dropped his thing and I was like, I'll try this. His is really deep, really nerdy. Yeah. I've been using it a little bit, but I've adjusted my workflow so much that I kind of miss the way the Bounce Butler just works. Yeah. But there's so much potential with the right. Bounce Factory where like, you know, I feel like I could continue to automate on the back end of it. Like, okay, now yeah. do this after it bounces because everything kind of can go to wherever it needs to go to. But cool. Anyway, yeah, it's, uh, I, I love those tools. Yeah. All right, last question for you uh, before we tangent again. Uh, what right now is your current biggest goal that you're able to share with us? And what's the next smallest step you're going to take to go towards it? 
I think it's my studio here out here in Jersey. I'm in this freestanding building that's like a carriage house. And, you know, the previous owners kind of had it set up like a living room. So there's like wall-to-wall carpeting and you might be able to see in the frame here, there's like just a big, awful drywall ceiling. Two big studio no-nos. The mixed position sounds good because of the tube traps and I have a ceiling cloud, but uh, I really would like to get this whole room a little bit more acoustically friendly for recording and just things sounding good at, in any position in the room. Yeah. So one of my, uh, I've been sitting on this for like a way too long, but I need to rip up the carpet and treat the ceiling. Yeah. It's just, it's got to happen soon. I'm looking forward to it. I think it'll, it'll be inspiring when it's done. It's just a lot of logistical decisions and lots of material and uh, probably having to hire some people to help me. <laughs> yeah. You're not handy. You're not going to go and build clouds. I'll build the clouds probably, but I, I get a little bit of option anxiety as to the design and materials and uh, I just, yeah, I just have to focus the energy to do it one day. So That's cool. That's awesome. Hopefully by telling the world on Progressions Podcast, I'm, I'm now obligated to do it. Hold me to it, Travis. Well, I, I, you can come back next year. Sure. And if there's no panels on your wall. Sure, yeah. The, everyone can... Um, we're just going to end the interview. Berate me. Yeah. <laughs> Canceled from mixing. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Dude, this has been, uh, it's been a lot of fun. Definitely please tell people uh, anything you want to share with people, whether it's where they can find you or records you love or, or whatever. Um, this is your moment to say whatever. Yeah, andrewmori.net kind of has like a cool interactive discography grid where you mouse over the work and it plays samples of the mixes, whatever. It is cool. Instagram. I don't really use anything other than Instagram these days. Um, even that's reluctantly, but, uh, yeah, find me out there. Dude, thank you so much, man. This has been great. I thank you for sharing your time with us and, and, uh, rambling with me. And, uh, I think people will have a good time listening to it. Yeah. Thanks, Travis. And I, I really like your podcast. I've been listening to a bunch of episodes, so. Oh, thanks, man. I appreciate that. Appreciate that. Yeah. Keep it up. I, I hope to hear many more interviews over the years. Keep it coming. That's it for episode 68. Thanks to Andrew Mori for coming on the show. Thanks to all of you for listening. And if you've been enjoying the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or share the show with a friend. Both of those things mean so much to me, as well as obviously helping the show grow. And finally, don't forget to join us over on completeproducer.net. And with that, I will see y'all next time.